please open your Bibles to Genesis 41. Genesis 41. And we will be looking at the entire chapter. Before we read together the word of the Lord, I'd invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study of God's word together. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It is not ours. We ask that you would grant us hearts that humbly submit to it, that find in it great joy and delight, that we may know what you mean, not not merely by knowledge, but by experience when you say that your word is sweeter than honey. Father, let us taste and see this morning that you are good. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I am going to read the entirety of this chapter this morning. We're going to begin by reading all of Genesis 41. It is 57 verses long, but it is a great story. And so I hope you can either choose to follow along with me or you can choose to listen, but I'd encourage you to look at the text so that you When we come back to verses throughout, you are able to track with us as we go. So I will make some observations before we go forward, but, or as we go forward, but I would like to just simply begin by reading God's word. If, again, if you're new to the Bible, new, it's been a long time since you've been back to church, you can find that the chapter divisions are the large numbers in that. In in your Bible, those small numbers, those indicate the verse divisions. And and those aren't original. Moses, when he was writing the book of Genesis, didn't have chapters and verses that he was dividing things down. Those were added later to help us navigate it so that we could simply say, turn to Genesis 41. Follow along as I read this incredible account of a rags-to-riches story. And it came to pass, at the end of two full years, that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he stood by the river, and suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. And the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults to this day. When Pharaoh was angry with me, with his, when, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. 
To each man, he interpreted to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved and changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer that is favorable. Or here it's translated in the New King James, an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river, and suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads with withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, east wind, they sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of, of, of grain, or of, rather of corn, are seven years. The dreams are one, and the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, Seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the, peop- so the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh Twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land, to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years." And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain and under the, under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the, during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all, the, all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only as regarding the throne will I be greater than you. 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen. And he put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went over all the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in those seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of seven years which were in the land of Egypt, and he laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. And Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says, you do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of famine. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands. It's a lengthy chapter. It's a lengthy chapter. But what a, but what an incredible account of what God has done here. How through Joseph he preserves the life of millions. In our, in our own day, there was a man by the name of Norman who back in the mid-20th century revolutionized wheat farming, did so in such an instrumental, was so instrumental in that process in devising and creating uh, strains and kinds of wheat that would be resistant to disease, that places of the world that were continually under pressure because of food shortages they found themselves with a wealth and an abundance of food. An ordinary man by the name of Norman Borlaug, he's often forgotten even though he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work. In fact, today, there are millions, perhaps more, more likely billions, who are alive because of him. In his own time, he was more celebrated. Nowadays, I have increasingly heard people who are who believe that his Nobel Peace Prize ought to be revoked because certainly there are far too many people in the world. We're going to have all sorts of problems as a result of that. 
But his work has saved billions of people. Has preserved not only through prevention of starvation and famine, but also through the conflicts around that food that always ensued. And Joseph, however, is a greater picture of someone who provides. And you can think of the arc of this chapter. You think of the arc of Joseph's life. Joseph, who, as a young 15, 16-year-old, is given himself special promises of God that he would one day rule. And of course, we know that those promises do not come true immediately. At the age of 17, he is taken captive, sold by his brothers into slavery. And then eventually sold into Egypt and unjustly condemned. And now, incredibly, he is brought out. At the age of 30, we read in verse 46. The age of 30, for 13 years he suffered, but the purposes and the plans of God remain the same. Despite the fact that Joseph's circumstances rose and fell precipitously. You think of the purposes of God and his plans for the people of Abraham. The covenant that he made with Abraham. That through Abraham, not only were there come a deliverer, of which Joseph is a particularly potent picture of, but through Abraham and his descendants, They would bless the world. And do we not see the beginning of that in this chapter? Egypt and other nations begin to be saved because of Joseph. We see the purposes of plans of God, not only for Abraham's kind, but for the entire world. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, where we read of Adam and Eve rebelling against God. And yet God in his mercy making promises that there will one day come a deliverer who will rescue and deliver them. Not not from merely the circumstantial pain of their lives, but from the, the very root cause of it all. Their sin, our sin, our guilt. In this chapter, this, this entire story of Joseph it highlights for us one particular perfection of God. We, we touched on it last week at length. We're going to do so again this week. But this particular perfection, this attribute of God, his, his sovereignty. If we only had the book of Genesis, we, we would not know very much of many of, other God's, uh, many of God's other perfections. We might not have any real depth to understanding of his holiness. You get to Exodus and Leviticus, and those things begin to get unpacked in incredible ways. But in Genesis, God is, through Moses, exalting his sovereignty. That is, that he is the one who rules over all. As it has been described, God's sovereignty is his his most holy and wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Ephesians 1.11 describes it like this. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Or Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. The Lord, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Charles Spurgeon, in a beautiful, picturesque way, he puts it like this. He writes, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than that, than that which God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. The fall of the leaves from a poplar ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. There is nothing in all the world over which God is not now ruling and reigning. And and Genesis highlights that. The story of of Joseph highlights that. We see that here Chapter 37, Joseph is given two dreams. Then there's another pair of dreams in in the previous chapter, in chapter 40, where the baker and the butler, the baker and the cupbearer, they each have their own dream. And here, Pharaoh is given two dreams. God interrupting the very sleep of men to give them and call them to what he desires. None of the wise men, none of the diviners are able to evaluate and interpret these dreams. We see God's sovereignty over particular events. Think of all of the the happy circumstances, or it's only happy when you look at it from the end, but at the time when, when Joseph is himself sold into slavery by his brothers. Think of all the, the little decisions that went into that. His brothers, remember, they, they went to, to Dothan. Rather than going toward another place, Dothan is, you may remember, it is, the, it is a location that was near the major trade route. They could have gone anywhere. They went there. Beyond that, they, they went there and Joseph arrives at the right time. And, and at the perfect time, his brothers see the... the the slave traders coming through. When the one brother, Reuben, doesn't want to sell him, but is, it is off handling some other business, his brothers conduct secret business selling Joseph into slavery. And Joseph, of all the people he is sold to, he is sold to Potiphar, who his wife unjustly accuses and he is unjustly condemned, but he is unjustly condemned to a particular prison, the same prison that it just so happens that the king, Pharaoh, sends his prisoners to. And the Pharaoh, he sends prisoners too, and those two people just happen to have dreams themselves. Which leads us to our current chapter. All of these things and a million others, God is at work with. He is sovereign over all events. There are no accidents, there are no random, there is no randomness to the world. God rules and he reigns, he controls it all. And you can trace God's sovereignty over the weather because unless God is sovereign over the weather, this story does not make sense. God is not merely telling what what will be, what he knows in the future is going to happen. It's outside of his control, but he knows it's coming. That's not what's happening. 
God is telling him what he is going to do. This is all by design. And it's going to happen quickly because God has ordained that it will be. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for some genuine springtime. Like, can we, ha- can we not have rainy days? End on end, the ground is saturated. And yet every drop of rain that falls here falls at the command of our God. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes the lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasury. Psalm 135, verses 6 and 7. And we see God's sovereignty here over over people and choices and hearts and feelings and nations. Potiphar and the prison warden are both, by God's hand, they are made favorable towards Joseph. God works in their hearts so that they themselves like and approve of Joseph as he himself is working. God gave Joseph favor in their eyes. And Pharaoh, God unsettles merely with a dream, leading him to ask his, explain the dream to his diviners, and just so happens that the cupbearer happens to be there. Acts 17, 26, the Lord has determined the appointed times and the boundaries of nations' dwellings. The king's heart, Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. In this chapter, Pharaoh is unsettled. And we read, when he is unsettled, we read in verse 14 that he, he calls for Joseph to come. He learns about Joseph through the cupbearer, calls for him to come. And you hear these words, I have had a dream. He, I'm sorry, and Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And you, you can, it's a staccato, short br- bursts of action. And they, he calls Joseph and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. I mean, Joseph, one day he is in He's in prison, he's happy, he's working, well, happy being a very relative term, but he is, he's serving, he's doing what God has called him to do. It's miserable there, it's terrible there, it's a diseased, dark, dank place. But he is faithfully serving where God has put him. And the door opens, the guards come in, they quickly drag him out. Maybe they tell him what's going on somewhere in the process of dunking him underwater, trying to clean him up briefly before they and to get him sort of ready to stand in front of Pharaoh. Shaving him up, making him look at least somewhat presentable for, a, for an imprisoned slave. And you see all of that happening, and yet despite all this, It is, despite the fact that Pharaoh's the one on the throne, Joseph is the one who appears like he's in control. Joseph is the one who gives the longest, most rational and thoughtful speech in the entire chapter. 
He explains everything, walks through everything. He is calm. He's got a presence of mind, not only to evaluate Pharaoh's dream, but to interpret it on the spot, and then to wisely give counsel, which was a bold move. Compare how he talks to Pharaoh to move not only to give, let me tell you what your dream means, and now I'm going to give you some advice. And he said, therefore, this is what you need to do. You need to raise up a man. He's got to be this kind of person. And you're going to have to give him authority. Because if this is going to happen, you're going to need a lot of authority to deal with all of the problems. And this is, this is the best way forward. And then you compare it to how the, the cupbearer talks to Pharaoh. I mean, he, he starts off, I, I remember my former offenses against you. He's like an obsequious little, I don't know, rat. He, he just... He's, he's kissing up. He doesn't want to offend Pharaoh in, in any way. He's trying to, to make Pharaoh, even, even at that moment, he's afraid of finding himself thrown back in prison. Meanwhile, Joseph, who's in prison, simply dragged in, walks in, declare, gets, receives the, the, the dreams. It's not me, Pharaoh. I don't, have the, I don't have the power to do this. God alone will be the one to give you the interpretation. But he speaks. Joseph doesn't hesitate for a moment. At this, at this critical moment, Joseph shows what it looks like to be absolutely confident that God is absolutely in control. See it again and again and again. Verse 16, verse 25, verse 28, verse 32. He, he talks about God in each of those. God will do it. God has doubled these dreams up. Why? Because he is, he is just telling you, this thing is established. It will be, and it will be shortly. Joseph, not Pharaoh, appears to be the one in control. Despite the fact that it is Pharaoh who's sitting on the throne. Because Joseph has learned to trust that God is in meticulous control over everything, he's able to give praise to God alone as the one who is able to give anything. Friends, in in light of all that we are facing, in light of all that you are facing this week, in light of all the questions that you may have regarding your, your work, your family, your inner struggles... What is preventing you from having this kind of confidence this morning? And the cost of everything has just gone through the roof. Has God lost control at the gas pump? Is, is he unable to provide for you in the supermarket? Health isn't so good. My marriage is breaking apart. Marriage, I'm still single. Doesn't God know what I'm waiting for? My children, my grandchildren, they they worry me. Pressures that we face at work. All of it, all of it. God rules and reigns over. 
And not just personal issues, but global issues. Because what Joseph is walking into isn't merely a personal issue. It is a global issue. One that will affect all nations in that area. Think of economy, the education for kids, the politics, the dramatic shifts in our country's attitude towards so many things. We think of the conflicts that are now undergoing there in Eastern Europe, in China, and in other parts of the world. Joseph is living all alone in a country and a culture that is opposed to God in every way. And he doesn't complain, he doesn't whine, he doesn't scream in outrage, he does not show an ounce of panic or anxiety. He trusts God. You know, every election season, we are told that this next election is the most important election that our country has ever faced. But that would mean that we are omniscient. That we know what the stakes were and are at every election and how they are bigger and more serious than, than they were, have ever been. And never will be. And that is knowledge that none of us possess. But notice how calm and collected Joseph is. This is, you might say, if someone was trying to clean Joseph up and they're like frantically trying to wipe the grime off his arms and face to make him presentable. You know, trying to shave years of scruff so that when he stands before Pharaoh, he's not offensive to Pharaoh's sensibilities. And yet... As those people are scrubbing, they, they, they must have thought, Joseph, why aren't you more terrified? Joseph, don't you realize this is the biggest moment of your life? Joseph doesn't appear to be phased by any of it. Because he is totally and absolutely confident in his God. Not in his ability to nail the interview with Pharaoh. And we sing this when we sing those hymns, those songs that remind us of God's control. Here, one of the ones that we have been singing as a church, whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me in the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. So patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here now shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. 
My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. Friend, it is remarkable to watch Joseph in this moment. Calm. Trusting in God. May we begin to follow him in this. But you'll, most, you'll see that Joseph's faith in God does not lead him to become passive. It leads him to become active. It's always been that way for Joseph. The promises of God are given. God has declared to him what will be. Joseph doesn't then just break out the lazy boy, prop the feet up and say, okay, God, you do it. Joseph shows what genuine faith looks like. He is dragged before Pharaoh. He, he interprets the dreams. He is the one who then gives counsel to Pharaoh, telling him exactly the what he should do. He's the one who, once the council has been given, and once Pharaoh has named him and given him great honors, he is the one who must plan. He is the one who must interview all of the individuals who are going to be in charge of collecting the grain. You can imagine all of the corruption that might exist. He's got to have, if he's truly a wise and discerning people, he's got to have people under him who are wise and discerning and honest men and people of integrity. He's got to build granaries and oversee their, 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 their construction. He's got to oversee the, the collection system. 20% of everything everyone grows is now given to the government, which sounds terrible to them, but my goodness, that's still far less than the government our day takes. And all of this he does and he, he takes advantage of, of every possible and every shred of authority he has. Joseph acts. He surveys all the land. We see that in verse 46. He must have carts built. He must have drivers brought on. He, he has got to oversee everything what we are talking about is not him sitting off on this lazy boy while, you know, that those old uh, pictures, those old movies, that just, you know, picture the, the Egyptian there sitting, you know, being fanned with palm branches, being fed grapes. That's not Joseph. He's a man hard at work. For seven years, he's at hard at work. And then when the seven years of good are over, now it's the hard work of making sure Everything that is dispensed is done with honesty. Which is why in later chapters when people are coming through, despite the fact that he's second in command to Pharaoh, he's doing things personally. Making sure it's done right. But not only does he act, doesn't just leave it in the hands of God to just do whatever he wants. Let go, let God, I can trust it all to him. He acts with wisdom. True wisdom isn't just knowledge about how the world works. It's about knowing how to act and live in a broken, sin-cursed world in light of who God is. And Joseph trusts in God. He knows that God is sovereign and he works with all wisdom to lay out a wise course of action and then to follow that course of action. 
He acts with wisdom in every way. And this is important for us to see. You remember, this, this book is written to the Israelites before they enter into the promised land. And I think two, two things come out of this. One, Moses on, on one level is, is wanting the Israelites to see, hey, I know you just came out of 400 plus years of slavery. You need to know, however, there was at no time during that slavery over which God was not in control. He's reminding them of the sovereignty of God. And as they enter the promised land, the land that God had reminded them that he was giving to them, he wanted them to know that they just can't waltz right in and expect everyone to just give it to them. They're going to have to work. They're going to have to fight. They're going to have to do so with wisdom. There are strategies that will need to be taken, that will need to be established. There are plans of battle. There are, there's going to be need for not only work, but wisdom. Because God is sovereign, we must exercise wise and active faith. You know, in Islam, there is, this, there is a keen understanding of the meticulous sovereignty of God. And so it is not uncommon for those in Islam to say, hey, God is in control. Allah is in control. Therefore, if, if, if he wants me to die, I'm going to die. If he wants me to live, I'm going to live. Therefore, I, I will do something reckless. I don't have to be careful because God's in control. He's going to take care of it anyway. But we understand that this is not what we see in the Bible. God ordains not only the ends, he ordains the means to those ends. So because God is sovereign, we expect that God will provide through a job. He may choose to provide for us outside of normally working. He may remove from us our our labor for a time, and that, that is his prerogative. But we work as he commands. We do as he commands. We exercise wisdom in our financial decisions, our future plans. We, we are careful with whom we have relationships with. Teens, your job, what you need to do is grow in wisdom now so that as you go to college or you begin a career, you are not going to make mistakes that you're going to be having to undo for years. Because God is sovereign, we... We lock our homes. We lock our cars. I remember going down into Philadelphia one day and I was with an older believer and we were in a a not very good part of town. And we got out of the car and I hit the lock on my side and he unlocked the car door and I left his keys in the ignition and we walked away. And I was a teenager at the time and he said, hey, if God wants my car to be stolen, he will. At the time, I thought, wow, that's really wise. That's, that's a man of faith. No, that's a man who lacked wisdom. Because God is sovereign, we do not take unnecessary risks. Because God is sovereign, God instructed his people in the Old Testament to take certain safety precautions so that people weren't hurt 
on accident. But then he goes on to say that if there was an accident that occurs, he is himself still sovereign over it. Because God is sovereign, we pray. Not because we're changing the heart of God, but because through prayer, he has ordained that through those prayers, we would accomplish what he desires to happen. Because God is sovereign, we we tell others about Christ. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is in the city of Corinth. And at one point, he is once again unceremoniously kicked out of uh, the gathering place of the local Jews. And while he is kicked out, he, he shakes off the dust. And there's clearly some discouragement going on. And his response to that, or rather the Lord's response to that, is to visit him and to tell him, Paul, keep on preaching in this city, for I have many people. I have many people. That language, I have many people, is an in is an indicator all throughout the book of Acts of God's sovereign election. But he says, because I have many people in this city, keep on preaching. The gospel will get to them. There will be people who turn to and trust in Christ. Far from our undermining our activity, trusting in the sovereignty of God moves us. Not from... It moves us not with a confidence in ourselves or in our own ability, in our own wisdom, in our own work. But it moves us to trust in God even as we work. And we see that Joseph shows the pathway through all this faith in God, humble faith, confident faith, wise faith, active faith. And he shows us a picture of Christ and his exaltation. Joseph, who was hated by his brothers, sold by his brothers, unjustly condemned, now he is lifted up as out of a grave. And he is given the opportunity here to rule. Just as God planned. Just as God declared to him. Because Joseph trusts in the Lord, he acts wisely. He is an example for us to follow. But he is a picture of Christ. Christ who, if Joseph is faithful and because of that faithfulness, he is fruitful. Christ is so much more. We read in Isaiah 52, verse 13, that Christ, the servant of God, he will deal wisely, prudently, and as a result, he will be exalted and extolled and very high. And through Christ, the wisdom of God is on full display at the cross. I mean, who would have conceived... But the way that God would deal with our sin was for himself to bear the burden of it. For himself to bear the guilt of it. That is inconceivable to us. That the the record of our wrongdoing should be credited to the record of Christ. Christ. 
And there the wisdom of God brings the justice of God and the love of God and it meets there at the cross where where the wrath and the furious justice of God are satisfied through the blood of Christ for everyone who turns and follows after Jesus. Oh, friend. Friend. This is a Jesus that that is... Joseph is a wonderful picture of Jesus. Joseph is a glorious deliverer in and of himself. But he is a small, lowercase deliverer, D, small, lowercase D deliverer. Jesus is a all caps deliverer. He can save you. Friend, you and I, we, we must be saved. For outside of Jesus, we deserve and we will experience nothing short of the unrestrained, furious justice and wrath of God for all that we have done. For first and foremost, you and I have sinned, not against one another, though we have done plenty of that. Our sin is first and foremost against Him who reigns above, Him who made us, Him who has lent us every breath. And this God, despite the fact that we have from the very beginning rebelled against Him in every way, He has sent His Son into the world to bear the sin for all who trust in him. Friend, will you not this morning turn? Will you not this morning humble yourself and submit yourself to the work, the generous, oh, the generous goodness and grace of Jesus? Will you not have your record cleansed Will you not have your shame erased? Will you not be forgiven? Oh friend, trust in Jesus today. Trust. And friend, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we think and we reflect on Joseph, let us not end with him merely being a wonderful example of what active, wise faith in our good and sovereign God looks like. Let us see through him to our glorious Savior who is a far greater deliverer for us. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, there is no end to your power and yet we confess that so often we live, all of us, we, we live as if our next day is due to our good planning, is under our own control. Let us live, as the book of James reminds us, that we, to live every day as, as you will, 
making plans as you will, trusting you with all of our time, all of our effort. And Father, we pray that you will impress us more than anything today with your grace and your exalted Son, Christ Jesus, who was humbled for our sake, that we may be delivered through him. Oh God, we come to you not in our own righteousness or goodness. We come to you through and in him alone. So do your good work according to your grace in us. In his name we pray. Amen.